portion of God's word that we will focus our attention on for a few minutes this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our risen redeemer. Amen. So we are two weeks into our catechism season with this year's round of catechism students. Many of you know last year we started welcoming 5th and 6th graders as well as 7th and 8th graders, so we've got four grades worth of Mount Olive kids here and there are 26 young men and women coming every week to, to, to learn more about God's word. It's been fun to get to know them and to, to teach them. This last week, we focused on the second commandment. Remember that one? It's the commandment about God's name, right? Some older translations say, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. NIV, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It's a good opportunity to talk about Names. And so that's where we started on Wednesday night. What's a name? One of the kids shot the hand up in the air and said, it's, it's what you're called. It's a good answer. A name is what you're called, right? But the more you get to know a person, you begin to connect, whether you think about it or not, everything you know about a person with their name. As you know, my, my wife is due with our seventh child in less than three months. And so what are we doing? We're talking about names, right? Put that thought on hold for a minute. I want you to think of the meanest human being you've ever met. Everybody got the meanest person you ever met? Remember the name? Maybe you're thinking of some kid from second grade. Maybe you're thinking of an employer or a coworker. Maybe someone from college. Now go back to the naming of a child thought. Let's imagine that Melissa suggests a name, boy name, girl name, and it happens to be the name of the meanest person I've ever met my whole life. 
You think I'm eager to name a son or daughter the name of the meanest person I've ever met? Probably not. Because every time you think of that name, everything you know about that person comes flooding back. Everything they said to you, everything they did to you, all the negative thoughts associated with a name can impact every other person that you ever meet who has that same name. Now, in the past, I've said things to you like, Christ is not Jesus' name. And what I mean by that is it's not his last name, as in first name Jesus, last name Christ, right? Christ is his title. Christ, Messiah, anointed one. We sung that in the psalm, right? We talked about the Lord and his anointed one. That's the Christ. That's the Messiah. And yet, for today's purposes, we're going to think of Christ as a name because it is. A title does the same thing that a name does. You think president, and everybody has a ton of thoughts that come to their mind when they think of the title president. Same thing's true with Christ. When you think of the word Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, all sorts of things, really everything you know about the Christ should come flooding into your your mind. So the question for today is, what's coming into your mind? What do you think of when you think of the Christ? Our text takes place on Tuesday of Holy Week. And so everything that has happened over the past three years between Jesus and the Pharisees, all those interactions, all those tests, all those attempts to trap him, that's all in the rearview mirror. Jesus dies in mere days. Now, our text began with a little note about the Sadducees. We don't hear a ton about them in the scriptures, but here, Jesus just silenced them. And that's what draws the Pharisees in this particular time. Pharisees and Sadducees did not get along well. You might remember the Sadducees, they were that group of Jewish leaders who rejected the resurrection altogether. And that tells you a lot about what they believed concerning God's word, especially what we would call the Old Testament, right? They thought everything written in the Old Testament was for this life and for this life alone. God's laws, they're for here. They're they're for our life. They're to give us an orderly life, to give us a, a better life. That's it. That's all they're about. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no resurrection. They denied all of that. Everything was about this life. And the way Jesus silenced them was kind of fascinating. He just said, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That's it. You don't know God's word and you don't know God's power. That's why you're wrong. All your beliefs, everything that you guys believe about life and death and God's word, it all came from here. You made it all up like a philosopher. You thought and you thought and you thought and you concluded and now you believe. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And this is interesting because who comes in now? It's the Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? They were the ones who knew the scriptures as well as anyone. They were the experts in God's word. They were the ones who were supposed to know everything there was to know about the Old Testament and they thought they did. We could do a whole sermon 
on the first half of our text, the question they ask Jesus, right? What's the greatest commandment in the law? And he, he does the summary of the Ten Commandments that we've heard many times, I bet. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a perfect summary of God's word. But then he flips the script and asks them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they have an answer right away. The son of David. This was an easy question for them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, 2 Samuel, son of David. I'm gonna summarize two of these for you. In Isaiah, the kingdom of David is pictured like a tree, a tree that's been cut down, right? Because in Isaiah's day, Isaiah was prophesying about the fall of the kingdom of Israel from an earthly perspective. And this tree is cut down. We're, we're told there's this stump, the stump of Jesse. It's what's left over after the kingdom of David is cut down. And out of that stump will come a branch, a new king who will grow up out of the Davidic line, a descendant of Jesse and David. There you go. You need go no further, right? Who's the Christ? Son of David. Then Jeremiah picks up on the same concept. Jeremiah chapter 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Wonderful, beautiful words. And they could be said about any human king who descended from David, right? All these things a human could in theory do if God were to raise up a descendant of David to be a king for Israel. Listen one more time and think human. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Descendant of David, human. That's what they were thinking. And it makes sense to a, to a point. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve fall. God promises who's going to be the one to crush Satan's head? A descendant of Eve. One of her offspring. Go a little further to Abraham. Who's going to be a blessing to all nations on earth? One of his descendants. Who's going to be the Christ? One of David's descendants. And so the idea that the Christ would be a real human, it's a no-brainer. It's all across the Old Testament, right? But Jesus knew that the Pharisees believed that Christ was only going to be a man, and that was it, just a human. A great human, a necessary human, a needed human, a human who would bring great earthly blessing, but that's all they believed the Christ to be. And that's why Jesus takes them to Psalm 110, where he presents them with a problem. You experts in God's word, if the Christ is just the son of David, how can this also be true? How can David say, the Lord said to my Lord, my son, the Christ, how can this be? 
How can the Lord say to my Lord? If, if he is his son, how can he also be his Lord? A father's son does not become his master. Right? They had missed something. It was right under their noses. And I still have my Bible open to Jeremiah 23 for a reason. Listen one more time. I'm going to read you one more verse. You ready? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. You ready for it? This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteous Savior. And this is one of those all caps lords. Referring to the Lord, the I am God, the eternal God. Wait a minute. The experts in the law, they know the answer. A son of David, okay, you're right. But this should not be a shocker to them or anyone else. How can he just be a man if his name is Yahweh, the I am. That should have stopped the Pharisees in their tracks. That should have stopped them, and, and, and they said, wait a minute, this guy is not just a human. He will be a human, clearly a descendant of David, a descendant of Eve, Abraham, David, clearly going to be human, clearly. And so we should be looking for a man, but he will also be the Lord. This is not complex. We, we don't need to dig through the Bible and understand Hebrew and be expert theologians like the Pharisees thought themselves to be to understand that the Old Testament said when you're looking for the Christ, when you're looking for the Messiah, you are looking for a man who is also God. Can we understand this? No. No. You could have 40% of one thing, 60% of another, form a new thing, 100% of one new thing. But you can't have 100% of one thing and 100% of another thing form one new thing. It doesn't work that way. Yet that's what the scriptures say. That the Messiah, the Christ, would be 100% a man. And yet also 100% I am the God who always was, who is, and who will always be, the all-powerful, present everywhere, knowing all things God. You don't have to understand how it can be to understand what the scriptures say. It's clear. The Christ will be God and man. I know we don't normally turn around in sermons, but I want you to turn around for a minute. You folks at home, I'll describe it for you. But see the painting on the back wall? Many of you have seen that before. You might look at it every week when you walk out. It's dark painting, right? It's middle of the night. It's Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's the halo around his head reminding us, well, he's not just a man. He's, he's God too, the light of the world, right? Right? the eternal God. But if you think about art, 
pictures that we see of Jesus, there's that one of his smiling face kind of tipped to the side and it's got the Mona Lisa eyes thing going on wherever you are in the room. He's looking at you, smiling at you with those loving eyes. Many churches have it hanging up somewhere. Many people have it in their homes. It's a favorite of many. Is that what you think of when you think of Christ? The human? Because if you read Revelation chapter one, that's not exactly what John saw, is it? John didn't just see a, another flesh and blood man. He saw the I am God, God and man in all of his glory, right? What do you think of when you think of the Christ? You might intellectually know he's God and man. Do, do you show that you believe in that Christ every day of your life? Maybe you're really good at thinking of Jesus as human. And you remind yourself often, he gets what it's like to be me. He's my brother. When I'm suffering and and in pain and struggling with temptation and, and mourning unexpected loss of life, he gets that. He experienced all those things. He knows what it's like. But maybe you think of Jesus as man so often reading God's word, imagining what it would have been like when he fed the 5,000. You think so much of him as man that maybe subconsciously even you start to think that he's not able to actually help you. And even though you might know intellectually he's the almighty God, you don't go to him all the time. You just kind of sit and suffer. Woe is me. This is hard. Nobody can help me. And in that moment of weakness, that moment of sin, you show what you really think about the Christ. You don't really think he's the all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere God. Maybe your problem's the opposite. You have no problem thinking of Jesus as the almighty God, but you expect him to use his power in very specific ways, and when he doesn't, you get frustrated, even angry. You forget the difference between our understanding and his understanding. Our perspective is limited. We see the world through two eyes, two ears, our own senses, but we're at one point in time and we can only see things from that one perspective. We might be convinced that we are correct, that we understand it properly, but we will never see things the way God does. He sees things from every possible angle. He never misses a detail. He's never that father who yells at the kids who are misbehaving, thinking he knows what's going on and then later finds out, oh, I was wrong. I didn't know what was happening. He always understands every situation perfectly, far better than we could. And he promises that he's always gonna do what's in your best interest and mine, always. For our eternal well-being, he promises to act every single day. Do we perfectly believe that? I think if you're honest, you look back at the last week, you're going to find example after example after example of times when you, like me, have not perfectly viewed the Christ for who he is. And that's why it's so important for us that he is who he is. This is exactly why it's so important to be reminded that he actually is 100% man and 100% God at the same time. It is beautiful and wonderfully comforting to know that as a real human, Jesus understands us. Not just as the omniscient, all-knowing God 
who knows intellectually what it's like to be human. No, he actually experienced it. He lived it, just like you and me. That's wonderfully comforting. But even more important, as a real man, he was born under God's law, the same law that Jesus was asked to summarize, which means what? God's law applied to him. Jesus, true man, lived under God's law, was held accountable to the same holy, perfect standard that you and I are held accountable to. The one that we failed to obey, he obeyed perfectly every single day of his life. It's really important that he was actually human so that God's law would apply to him and so that when he died, it was a real death, but a death that he certainly did not deserve. And then there's the simple truth that he's also God. Immensely important. Because if he's just the perfect man that the Pharisees were looking for, then only Jesus is in heaven. He's the only one. We need him to be true God so that his death could pay for your sins and mine. So that his perfect life, which he actively lived under God's law, could be given to you and to me so that God could look at us and not only see people whose sins have been removed by Jesus' sacrifice, but see Jesus' perfect life in you, as if you did it. Why do you get to go to heaven? Why are you at peace with God right now? It's because Jesus, the Christ, true man and true God, is exactly the Savior you need. He lived the life you and I failed to live. He paid for your sins and mine, removing them forever, but then didn't leave us a blank slate to start over. He gave us his perfect obedience so that when God looks at you, he not only sees no sin, he sees Jesus' perfect life. He sees perfect obedience every single moment of your life. This is who the Christ is. He's your savior and mine. And just like a name brings to mind everything you know about a person, when you hear Christ, it brings to mind everything you know about Jesus. Jesus told the Sadducees they were in error because they didn't know the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. You do know the scriptures and you do know the power of God. You know the scriptures that describe to you the Christ, not in a way that you can understand, but in a way that you need to know. I can't explain to you how Jesus is God and man, but I can tell you that's what the scriptures say he is. I can point you to the fact that you have the Savior you need. How is this possible? By the power of God. And so this week, go home thinking about the Christ thinking about who he is, what what the scriptures say about him, cherishing the power of God, which assures you that your sins are forgiven and Jesus' perfect life is yours. You are at peace with God today, forever. Amen.